Uh, good morning to those of you watching online, to those watching in Ording Valley traditions here in the room. Uh, I have been really excited about the sermon series that we're in, Lessons Learned in Difficult Times. And here's why. Because we as a society, whether you experienced it in an acute way or in a general way, went through a crisis in fact, in many ways are still feeling the, the throes of that crisis, right? We went through the, the, the COVID-19 crisis and all of the other ramifications that went through it. And some of you, the minute I say that, you're, just, you're, you're in denial, you're in exhaustion, you are exhausted of hearing about COVID-19, and I can relate to that. I can relate to that. But um, psychologists will tell you that the best way to navigate crisis is by actually processing it. And one of the things that we felt as a pastoral team is that it's important for us as Christians to draw from difficult moments and difficult times the redemptive things that God wants us to learn in difficult times. You know, if God didn't want us to learn anything, he wouldn't have us go through difficult times. He wouldn't have us go through struggles and challenges. He wouldn't have us face obstacles in life. But the reality is God loves to grow us. He even sent his own son, as Hebrews said, to be made perfect through suffering. Now, if you're wondering, wasn't Jesus perfect already? Yes, and yet God had never had to suffer in that way before. And so Jesus even perfectly suffered. And we get to walk through difficult times. We get to walk through suffering, not to our own enjoyment. We're not supposed to just say, thanks, God, for, for making life hurt. But we are supposed to walk through it and draw closer to him in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the struggle. And God adds to us in that process. And so as we process the last year and a half, as we continue to move forward with, with more uh, ever-changing restrictions and cultural perspectives and politics and, and other things like that, we need to keep seeking the Lord and say, God, what do you want me to gain from this? What are you wanting to teach me from this? And I've noticed that in our culture, there's a lot of people that want to teach everyone else what they think is true, but very few people that have the humility to say, what can I learn out of all this? What, is, what does God want to teach me out of all of this? And so I'm processing quite a few things that I've learned. I learned a lot of things about myself. Some of them I'm not proud of. Um, you know, one of those things is that being home days and days and days in a row feels more like prison than like vacation. I learned that. I thought, I mean, I'm kind of a homebody. I like being at my house, but there is a point where enough is enough. And I kind of felt like there was an ankle bracelet on my ankle and, and I was under some sort of restriction. Well, I guess I was. But all that to say, I learned a lot of lessons about myself, but I also learned some things that I think apply to us as a community. I want to talk about one of those this morning, and it's this, that during the pandemic, I learned... And I witnessed the blessing of unity and the curse of disunity. I witnessed those two realities, those two sides of the same coin. I saw it play out in front of me, the very blessing of unity and the curse of disunity. I saw the power of diseases, of politics, of social issues, and all sorts of other dynamics to tear communities apart, to tear governments apart, and even 
in far too many cases to tear churches apart. Saw the power of those things to really divide and destroy good things that God had put together. And as a culture, I think the root of it is that we, and we we struggle with this all the time as human beings, but as a culture, we misevaluated what was most important on a lot of different levels. And what I mean by that is, on, in many of these categories, we decided that what we thought was important about those issues, diseases, politics, social issues, that our pers- perspective, our preferences on those issues, we believed were actually more important than the other people around us. And that was a root of much of the conflict that we saw in our society. In fact, that's always at the heart of disunity is when we believe that our preferences and perspectives are more important than the people around us. Now, my great fear in all of it, you know that that I was um, nervous when we reopened. I'm like, Lord, would you please protect us from some sort of a COVID outbreak? I, I believed that being together in community was a necessary part of healthy human existence, and yet there was risk that came with that. I, 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 when, when it was time for the elections and I knew that there were people with really strong opinions, I was just like, Lord, please don't let that be the focus of relationships in the church. There, there were things that I was concerned with about that. When I watched some of the different social issues come out, Black Lives Matter and other, other things that were hotbed topics, not just in our society, but in our own lives and homes, right? I was concerned that thir- certain things like that would become the dominant issues in our community. But most of all, can I tell you what, what my greatest fear is? This, is? this is my greatest fear. My greatest fear is that the church that I lead and that I myself will fail to live up to the calling and to the mission that God has placed on us. I have a lot of other fears that that play around in there, but the dominant fear is that we as a church and that me as a person will fail to honor the Lord and carry out our mission. That's my biggest fear. And and I wondered at multiple points in in that season, over this last year and a half, as I saw this recipe of circumstances, I didn't know how we would handle it. And let's be honest, we've watched around the nation as um, the church in our nation has in many ways lost influence and popularity in recent years. We've watched the church get put on the spot for failing to love people like Jesus has. We've watched many churches fail to live up to God's word. It's been a difficult season for the church in our nation, hasn't it? And so in all of that, I wondered, God, and I prayed and, and sought the Lord, and, but at the end of the day, we're a community of people, a whole lot of people making their own decisions and choosing their own preferences, choosing their own priorities, and I wondered what the outcome would be because the circumstances were frightening. But you know what I saw? I saw in you, I saw in this church for, the, for the, the most part, I, I, the, the, the vast majority of our church, I saw in you a church that chose unity over disunity. I saw at Sound Life Church a church that, not that all of the different opinions weren't represented in this community. Because by the way, I have the emails to, to prove it in case you want to know. 
You know, I saw a church where there were people that were totally against wearing masks and people that thought it was ridiculous anyone wouldn't wear a mask. By the way, we're all still here. I saw people that could not understand how someone else could vote for a Democratic candidate, and I saw people who could not understand how someone could vote for a Republican candidate. They're all still here. I should say they're mostly all still here. I saw people who wrestled over how to navigate all the social issues that were, were on our radar. I saw on social media all the time room for conflict and sometimes some very real conflict. I saw all those things and yet for the, the vast majority of our, our church I saw over and over again choosing unity over disunity. I saw our church choosing faith over fear, and that looked like a lot of different things in a lot of different moments. I saw our church choosing community over isolation, although we had to work hard in some different areas to try to remain connected in community. Right? I saw our church choose grace over judgment of one another. I saw our church choose each other over self. And I saw us choose God's way over the world's way the vast majority of the time. And I just want to say to you, Sound Life Church, thank you for loving Jesus more than you love yourself. Because I know how it felt. I know how many times I wanted to use whatever voice I had to push my own preferences and agenda. I know how many times I wanted it my way and I was convinced that it was the right way and yet I also know how many times the Lord brought me back to Caleb, what is the most important? Honoring him and carrying out the mission that he gave me. Which, by the way, transcends physical health. It transcends physical politics. It transcends national well-being. It even transcends the various social issues that impact our personal lives. The honor of Jesus and the mission of God transcend all of those things all of the time. They don't ignore them. They don't exclude them. They have solutions for them. But the honor of God and the mission of God are far more important than all of the other issues. And if you don't agree with that, it's because those things are idols in your lives. And I recognize that I wrestled with a few of those idols in this last season and had to put them in their rightful place. So I sum that up saying I experienced the blessing of unity and the curse of disunity. And I want you to think about those two words. Those aren't two words that we use a lot these days. We don't think a lot about blessing or cursing. Um, in fact, sometimes we should probably think more about those things. But what does that mean? Biblically, those two words are rich with meaning. Blessing, if we if we if we kind of tear it down to the basics. Blessing simply means experiencing life according to God's best intentions for us regardless of the circumstances around us. Regardless of the good and bad, ups and downs of life, that we experience God's best intentions for us. And you know the biblical example of that was Abraham. Abraham was a run-of-the-mill guy that God said, hey, if you'll follow me and follow the plan I have for your life, no matter what happens to you, no matter whether people like you or don't like you, no matter what happens in the world around you, you will be blessed by me. 
Good things will happen. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happened to Abraham. What it meant that as, it was that as Abraham navigated the ups and downs of life, some of them even caused by his own failures, that God made sure that the overall trajectory of Abraham's life was always moving towards good, better, best. That Abraham's failures could result in blessings and Abraham's successes were a part of God's blessings. Now, the other side of that is being cursed. The opposite of being blessed is being cursed. And being cursed, which by the way, sin, is what introduces a curse to all of us. Cursed simply means you are separated from God's ability to make everything in your life work out according to his best intentions. Cursed means you are left to your own efforts and abilities and intellect, and you are at the mercy of whatever circumstances happen around you. So, your life will be as good as you can make it and no more. Your life will be at the mercy of whatever difficult things come your way. That your life is completely up to you, which by the way, at the root of sin is the desire to say, God, I can do this better than you can do this. And the curse of sin is that we actually have that opportunity. And so Cain if Abraham is the example of blessing, Cain is the example of being cursed. That God came to Cain in a moment of struggle and said, Cain, don't do this. It will ruin your life. It will not be good. Don't give in to sin. Don't give in to this. And what did Cain do? He turned around and he went and murdered his brother Abel. And God says, man, Cain, you now are going to suffer the consequences of sin. You have separated yourself from me. You have not followed my plan. You're doing your own thing. And now, and God describes it to Cain. In, in Genesis chapter four, God says, and so now, Cain, you're gonna work hard at tilling the soil, and it's only gonna produce thorns. You're gonna try to have community, but instead you're always gonna be chased off and you're gonna be a wanderer in the earth. You're only gonna have conflict in your relationships. And that's what happens when we're separated from the blessing of God, when we're separated from God's ability to overcome the curse of sin. We are at the mercy of relationships and conflict, an effort that never quite pays off. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus came to erase the curse of sin once and for all. For all who would follow him, the grace of Jesus is that God's blessing comes on us even though we don't deserve it. And the trajectory of our lives, despite our sin, despite what other people do to us, is that of Jesus on the cross through the resurrection. That our life is moving, sometimes through suffering, sometimes through wonderful things. Our life is consistently moving on a trajectory trajectory of good, better, best. That is the blessing of God. That's what the cross of Jesus bought for us. It's what the resurrection of Jesus proved to us. And it's what following, of Je following Jesus achieves in our lives. That is the ultimate source of blessing. But following Jesus involves steps that help us to taste and experience that blessing. One of those things is unity. One of those things is living in unity. And the Bible celebrates unity in a number of ways. In fact, there's an entire psalm, a short psalm, dedicated to this theme of the blessing of unity. It talks about the miracle of unity in God's people. In Psalm 133, it says, How good and pleasant it is when people live together 
in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Talk about that in a moment. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Now, in this psalm, we have one statement that kind of makes sense, and then two statements that's like, what is that even talking about? It says that when God's people live together in unity, it is a wonderful, good, and pleasant thing. But it's not just a naturally good thing. It's not a good thing that just we make happen ourselves because the two little illustrations that he uses to describe it are of a miracle, of a mystery, something that is true but doesn't quite make sense because there's a divine element to it. So first he describes the anointing process of the high priest, the anointing of first Aaron and then the high priest after. There was a man-made oil, the ultimate essential oil, if you will, that they didn't just spritz into the air, all of you essential oilers. If you were seriously thought it was essential, you'd pour it on people's heads. But in, in Aaron's case, they poured a huge bottle of oil. Literally, it was supposed to drip down all over, soaking his hair, soaking his his garments if you want to experience that grab a bottle of canola oil try it later no just kidding sounds gross but all that to say they would do this and this oil symbolized it was a man-made fragrant oil that symbolized something special that God was doing through the priesthood and when they did this anointing process in alignment with God's word Aaron and the other priests after him were able to have special access to God's presence. They were able to go in to the deepest parts of the temple and and be in God's presence. And they were able to then minister God's presence. In fact, even pronouncing blessings and curses in the name of God on God's people. They were able to, through God's anointing that the oil symbolized, speak on behalf of God himself. This was a mystery because they knew it was just oil, and yet something about that oil process brought incredible life and blessing. That's what unity does. It's something that people do that brings divine, mysterious blessing. The second illustration is of another mountain. You might think, who's Hermon, and why is there dew on him? But it's actually a mountain in Israel, and in the Middle East, if there is moisture on the ground, that is a big deal, right? And there was a mountain that would catch moisture, that would catch dew. Mount Hermon would catch dew coming off of the Mediterranean Sea and would actually have lush places on it, but they knew no rain had fallen. And so they didn't know where the, the, you know, they didn't know where the moisture came from. They just knew all of a sudden there's water on the ground and plants are flourishing here. It was this mysterious blessing from God that things could flourish in a place where there was no rain. Similarly, when we are unified, there is blessing from God even though we can't explain where it came from. That's the way that unity brings blessing on us. And here's the thing, it applies to godly unity. We also see some examples in the Bible of ungodly unity, right? Tower of Babel. And in the Tower of Babel, people were unified and they were, they were experiencing a lot of great things, but they were still at the mercy of the curse of sin. They were still separated from God's blessing. So the blessings of unity are reserved for those who are walking with God in unity. 
walking with God in relationship. And so when we choose to live in godly unity, it brings God's blessings on all of us, on all of us. And when you think about that in a church context, when we choose to unite ourselves around the word of God and the worship of God, not everybody contributes the same amount to this family. Not everybody serves the same amount of hours. Not everybody gives the same amount in financial generosity. Not everybody worships with the same volume, praise the Lord, right? And not, not everybody does the exact, we all contribute different things in different amounts, but our unity together around the things of God brings a blessing on all of us. You know, you, you, you hear us talk about different elements of the ministry of this church, and you might have never been a part of that or seen that, but your unity has contribute to, contributed to it, right? Finances, we talk about, are always a great illustration. You might have given a dollar or $1,000 or $10,000, but a portion of that is supporting missionaries around the world. A portion of that is supporting the ministry of this church and this community, right? Our unity together is mysterious but powerful. And that's what God has called us to. But have you noticed that unity does not come easily? Unity doesn't come easily. If you've been married for about two weeks, you know that unity doesn't come easily. Right? If you've been in a workplace where you have to make decisions and work closely with other coworkers, you know that unity doesn't come easily. If you've been friends with the same group of people for a long period of time, you know that unity doesn't come easily. And if you spent any time on social media in the last year, you know that unity doesn't come easily, right? Unity doesn't come easily. Why is that? Because there is a devil who hates good relationship. God created us for a relationship. The devil seeks to destroy relationship at every level, and disunity is his goal. Everything in this world and in human nature works against unity, it works against it. And so unity is something that we have to fight for. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to the church about this in Ephesians 4. And I want you to notice why he's talking to them about unity in the first verse of this passage. And let's read it together. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by God. Wow. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope. For the future. And the passage goes on to talk about our oneness in Jesus a little bit and how we as the church are meant to operate together as this incredible unified family with God at the head. But Paul opens here with an incredible statement saying, hey, I'm a prisoner suffering for this. That's how significant this is. And then the leader of the church at that time says, I am begging you to please live your lives. Everything you've got, everything you can do, all of your emotions, all of your skills, 
skills, all of your relationships. Live your life worthy of the calling. Why? Because you have been called by your creator. You have been called personally by the one who designed you. You have been called because he has purpose for you. He loves you. He has a mission for you. And you will find abundant life in him and nowhere else. Do you know Paul's greatest fear? That the church would not live up to its calling to honor the Lord and carry out its mission. And he says, please, whatever else you do, whatever else you care about, whatever else you fight for, whatever else you live for, whatever else you save up money for, whatever else you give your time and energy and affection to, whatever else it is, choose the calling of God over all of it. Choose the honor of God over all of it. Choose the mission of God over all of it because everything else is secondary to that purpose. So he says, live your life according to that calling. And here's the first thing I know about unity. I don't even think unity is possible without this. Unity happens when you and I live for something bigger than ourselves. That's what fighting for unity requires of us. We have to live for something bigger than ourselves. And you know what I wish that I could say coming out of the last year and a half, I wish that I could say, you know what, guys, everything's gonna be just fine. Our country's gonna get nice, you know, and unified again, and we're gonna be, you know, we're just gonna be wonderfully unified all over again. And I, maybe that'll happen, but it won't happen short of this. It won't happen short of people choosing to live for something bigger than themselves, bigger than their preferences, bigger than their individual rights, bigger than whatever. It has to be bigger than them. That's the the source of unity. And here's the beautiful thing. God has given us something. He's given us the church. He's given us his work. And he has called us to be a part of that. You know, the church is simply this. It's simply God's dream of partnering with broken people to heal more broken people. It's God's dream. He's like, I want to make something beautiful out of something messed up. And then use that beautiful thing to make more beautiful things out of something messed up. It's a privilege to be a part of that. And we have to make his mission our highest priority. But then did you notice how he applies that? You know, I'm always, after reading a statement like verse one, I'm like, charge, yes, Paul, what are we gonna do? Let's go out and we'll preach and we'll do missions and we'll do all this stuff and let's raise money and go do things, right? And he says, why don't you just try being nice to each other? Let's start there. I remember when I first experienced God's calling in my life as a, as a senior in high school, I remember experiencing his call and kind of giving my, like literally, this is what it means to hear God, is that you want to give your whole life to Jesus and let him say what he wants to do with it. And I remember doing that and thinking, okay, God, what amazing thing do you have in store for Caleb Bryant? And you know the first time I ever felt like a real clear sense of God speaking to my heart? This is like 17-year-old Caleb Bryant. What does God speak to this ambitious young teenager? Love your family better. It's not the glamorous calling that I thought he had in store for me. And I remember feeling so convicted about how I felt about my parents, my siblings, all that kind of thing. And you know what's interesting? God can't accomplish what he wants to accomplish through you unless you're willing to treat people the way he wants to treat people through you. 
doesn't work that way. You can have the mission of God in mind, but if you're a big jerk about it, nobody cares what God has for them. And so the second part of unity is that we have to love others more than ourselves. You have to choose. And by the way, this is not an easy thing every time you need to do it. You have to choose in that moment, I'm going to love this person. I'm going to love these people. I'm going to love people more than I love myself. I'm going to fight against myself to react the way I want more than I'm going to fight against them because I don't want what they want. We have to choose a life of serving over selfishness. We have to choose life in community over isolation. We have to choose a life of invitation rather than insiders only. We have to choose that over and over and over again. And I'll tell you what, it's not easy. It's not easy, is it? We have to give grace to others rather than fight for ourselves. And we have to do that in the church and we have to do that outside of the church. But we have to do it, you know, you might be surprised how much we have to do that inside the church. And I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I think that, that was true even in our pastoral team. We didn't always agree about everything this last year, right? But we had to fight for the mission and keeping the mission central. There were people that I love in this church that, that verbalized strong disagreement with decisions that I was making and sometimes decisions I didn't even want to make, but I thought it was best for the people of God or for the season that we were in. And through that all, where there was unity, there was blessing. And where there was disunity, there was the curse of pain and conflict and all the things that come with that. And so what does that all mean practically? It's one thing to say, like, live for something bigger than ourselves and, you know, love others more. You're like, okay, Caleb, yeah, basic Bible stuff, right? But how does that work when we are people that are called to hold to a standard of truth, because by the way, that's another thing that is an access point for God's blessing. Living according to the word of God will always be the greatest source of blessing for God's people. So we can't be unified apart from the standard of truth. And that often is where Christians get caught. That's where the enemy loves to play us against each other because we form opinions about what the word of God means for us. We form opinions about which part of the word of God is more important than another part of the word of God, which is why good, thoughtful study and also study within community and being a part of a community that elevates the word of God and is willing to discuss and talk, all that stuff is so important. But what happens when we don't agree with someone else on, a, on biblical grounds. When we're like, Caleb, isn't this, isn't this a fight moment? Like, they're saying this and it's not true in the Bible. We gotta fight for this. I'll tell you what, like, I'm always the first one that's down for a little scuffle when it comes to Bible. You know, like, let's, let's fight for the Bible, right? But I don't think that every part of biblical disagreement requires a huge fight. In fact, I think sometimes we make a mistake on the love for people and we make a mistake on some of the other things that the Bible calls us to when everything becomes a massive fight. And it was really helpful to me. I want to give you four categories of disagreement that I was sitting in a theology class a few years back and a really smart student was trying, you know, just like in Jesus' time, there's always somebody trying to stump the professor, right? 
And, you know, I was always the guy that was going to, like, sit quietly and watch the, the rat trap fall on the, on the person trying to stump the professor. And so he kind of put up this theological dilemma, and he said, you know, so is this worth splitting a church over? Is this, these two theological statements, is this worth splitting a church over? I don't even remember what the dilemma was. But the professor just said, you know, we have gotten into a bad habit of making everything a divisive conflict. Of every time we disagree, it becomes a divisive conflict. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And he said, I think that there are actually different forms of disagreement that are even valid within theological disagreements. And so he gave us his categories. I want to give them to you this morning. I think they're pretty solid. And he said, you know, the first couple are the ones we always think of. The first one, the most extreme form of disagreement is something that you would die for. And that would be something like Christians around the world, even today and throughout history, have had to die for if someone said, you must deny that Jesus is God or you will die. Now, that seems a little extreme in our context, praise the Lord, but around the world, that's a real thing, that there are certain beliefs that people would die for, right? But if somebody says, hey, Caleb, um, you have to, you have to um, deny that that." I don't, I don't know, some, you, have to, you have to explain who the Nephilim are in the Old Testament or I will kill you. I'd be like, They'll, they're whoever you want them to be at that point. Because that's not a critical theological issue. Some of you are like, who are the Nephilim? Don't even look it up. It's not even worth talking about. I mean, it is really interesting to talk about, but not helpful. And so there, there's things that are worth dying for in the Bible and things that aren't worth dying for in the Bible. I think at times Christians have been willing to die over things like whether the creation account is, is completely 100% scientifically accurate or not. And I don't think that's a die for issue. I think there's a couple different ways to explain that and still be faithful to Scripture. So not every theological issue is a die-for issue, but some are in the next category, and this is one we're more familiar with. It's a divide-for issue. It's something that's so serious that if you are going to keep following Jesus from those two different points of view, it's really hard for you to follow him in the same community. And this is the source of church splits throughout history or denominational splits. And it could be something, for, for me, a divide for issue would be like if, if a church had a really weak theology of sin, if they didn't believe that there was such a thing as sin or that sin was damaging, that would be a divide for issue because that is a massive factor in understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone didn't believe that, that God could save you through grace, that is a massive factor in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think that, that, that we would be able to work in the same community. I wouldn't hire a pastor that didn't agree on those things because those are divide for issues. The reliability of scripture. I would not be able to attend a church where people did not believe in the reliability and the authority of scripture. I'd probably even be willing to, I would be willing to die for that one too if I had to. But you see, these are the serious disagreements, something that is so important to our identity in Christ that is we are willing to die for or divide for that issue. And when you live for something bigger than yourself, if you truly are living for the calling of God on your life, there are things that are worth dying for or dividing for. That is true. And we shouldn't pretend like that's not true. There are things that can break unity according to the word of God. But not every issue is like that. And so these next two categories, in fact, the next one I think is where a lot of theological issues fall into place. And probably a lot of the things that we dealt with in this last year and a half, 
And the third one is to decide for. There's a lot of things that for the sake of unity in the community, it's not evil one way or the other. You don't have to divide over it, but you do have to decide on a course of direction. You have to decide on what is going to define you or not. A, a, a famous one or one that we should be well aware of in a Pentecostal church is how we understand the work of the Holy Spirit in us today. You know, we, we can be in community and worship Jesus with some people not believing that the Holy Spirit will do miracles and other people believing that the, the Holy Spirit will do miracles. But as a church, we need to know which one we really believe because it changes how we pray, it changes how we operate, it changes some of the things that we preach about. It's not necessarily a salvation issue, but it definitely is a faith and practice issue. So we, did, we have decided as a movement in the Assemblies of God, as a church, that we believe that the Holy Spirit does miracles today, that baptism in the Holy Spirit happens today. That's a decide for issue. And, and you know, practically speaking, sometimes not even with deep theology, we have to decide as a church that we're going to go a certain direction. You know, sometimes we make those decisions in, in business meetings or the board will make a decision on behalf of the church if we gotta go this direction or the pastoral team will make a decision we think this is the way to go. You know, this last year, some of the decisions that with how to handle masks and different mandates and things like that, those were not just practical decisions. Those were not just political decisions and they were definitely not just preference decisions. Because at the end of the day, we are called to live according to God's word. And just to let you in behind the curtain a little bit, the biggest struggle for me was that scripture tells us to honor our government leadership, even when we don't agree with all of it. Scripture calls us to do that unless that government is telling us to do something in opposition to, to scripture, in direct disagreement to God. And though there were some things that I think did border and step on the toes of that, there were a lot of things that didn't. And so as leadership team, as a board of directors, as a pastoral team, there were times when we had to choose things that none of us in the room preferred to do because we believed it was the most faithful thing, not in the face of a pandemic, not as a response to a governor or a government, but as a response to a God who has called us to live lives worthy of his calling. Now, those aren't easy decisions. Not everybody agreed with them, but we had to decide as how to respond as a community. And I, again, want to commend you that though there was a wide variety of opinions, Sound Life Church remained unified through it all. And I believe that we saw the blessing in the greatest year of missions giving that we have ever had. We saw the blessing in more baptisms and salvations than we have had in a while. We saw people coming to Christ and coming back to church more than we have seen in a while. I believe that God blessed our unity in those ways. But it wasn't easy, was it? Some of you right now, you're like, I don't feel very unified right now, Caleb. Why don't you quit talking about this stuff? I get it. We'll hug later. We'll get unified again, okay? And then the last category that sometimes we should leave some things here is debate for. That you just, this is something that you like, you go out to coffee and you argue about it. You go out to coffee and you're like, okay, so, you know, so who are the Nephilim anyways? Or, or here, do you think Jesus is coming back in October or November? And you can debate over it, 
but you shouldn't make any major life decisions over it, right? And sometimes we need to recognize some of the things that I'm really excited about are probably just debate for issues, not even decide for a whole community. And everyone gets to have a little bit of their own opinion, right? And that is a healthy part of a unified community as well. So here's the thing. When we are called to live a life worthy of the calling of God, there are things worth dying for and dividing for. But not everything is that way. And when we love others more than we love ourselves, we can decide on issues and we can debate for issues without separating the relationship, without entering disunity. And when we choose those things correctly, we experience the blessings of unity. I've talked a lot about the church today, but that's true in your marriage. In fact, those categories are probably true in your marriage. Maybe not the die for one, I don't know. That could be dangerous. You know, those are true in your workplace. Those are true anywhere human community exists, but they have to be done well in the church. And so, as we kind of wrap up this message today, I want you to think, are there areas where I have let my personal preferences creep into dominance over my love for people? Things that aren't necessarily God's calling on my life, they're just things that are really important to me. I wanna ask you seriously, are there areas that you need to repent of where you have put your own personal preferences above your love for God or people? We cannot hear God's word on unity and not respond with a little self-reflection. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Let's allow the Lord to work on our hearts. And I would encourage you, if you feel convicted, just confess it to the Lord. Say, Lord, I have. I've, I've let this thing be bigger than it needs to be. I'm sorry. And his grace is here to forgive us. So, Father, we come to you this morning. We come to you this morning and we submit ourselves to you. We recognize that you're our God and we are your people. You get to call the shots, not us. And sometimes you call us through difficult times and even suffering. But you have also guaranteed our eternal blessing. So Father, we lift our hearts to you in this moment. We ask, Lord, show us where we have elevated our personal preferences to an unhealthy place. We repent. Lord, we're reminded that our lives are not our own, but they belong to you. We're reminded that we exchanged our lives, our preferences, our personal comforts for you with you when you gave us your eternal life on the cross. Father, help us to live the resurrected life that you've called your people to. Help us to live free of enslavement to personal idols and free to love you and to love people the way you have called us to do it. And help us, Lord, help us, teach us how to do this in a world that's often confusing. In Jesus' name, amen.